Chapter Seven of the Wrecker, Irons in the Fire. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mary Stromberg of Louisville, Kentucky. The Wrecker by Robert Louis Stevenson. Chapter Seven, Irons in the Fire. Part One. Opus strepitumque. The food of the body differs not so greatly for the fool or the sage, the elephant or the cock sparrow, and similar chemical elements, variously disguised, support all mortals. A brief study of Pinkerton in his new setting convinced me of a kindred truth about that other and mental digestion, by which we extract what is called fun for our money out of life. In the same spirit as a schoolboy, deep in Maine Reed, handles a dummy-gun, and crawls along imaginary forests, Pinkerton sped through Kearney Street upon his daily business, representing to himself a highly colored part in life's performance, and happy for hours if he should have chanced to brush against a millionaire. Reality was his romance. He gloried to be thus engaged. He wallowed in his business. Suppose a man dig up a galleon on the Coromandel coast, his rackish schooner keeping the while an offing under an easy sail, and he, by the blaze of a great fire of wreckwood, to measure ingots by the bucketful on the uproarous beach. Such a one might realize a greater material spoil. He should have no more profit of romance than Pinkerton when he cast up his weekly balance sheet in a bald office. Every dollar gained was like something brought ashore from a mysterious deep, Every venture was like a diver's plunge, and he thrust his bold hand into the plexus of the money-market. He was delightfully aware of how he shook the pillars of existence, turned out men, as at a battle-cry, to labor in far countries, and set the gold twitching in the drawers of millionaires. I could never fathom the full extent of his speculations, but there were five separate businesses which he avowed and carried like a banner the thirteen-star Golden State Brandy, warranted entire, a very flagrant distillation, filled a great part of his thoughts, and he kept before the public an eloquent but misleading treatise. Why drink French brandy? A word to the wise. He kept an office for advertisers, counseling, designing, acting as middleman with printers and bill-stickers, for the inexperienced or the uninspired. The dull haberdasher came to him for ideas, the smart theatrical agent for his local knowledge, and one and all departed with a copy of his pamphlet, How, When, and Where, or The Advertisers Vade Mecham. He had a tug charted every Saturday afternoon and night, carried people outside the heads, and provided them with lines and bait for six hours' fishing at the rate of five dollars a person. I am told that some of them— doubtless android anglers, made a profit on the transaction. Occasionally he bought wrecks and condemned vessels. These latter, I cannot tell you how, found their way to sea again under aliases, and continued to stem the waves triumphantly enough under the colors of Bolivia or Nicaragua. Lastly, there was a certain agricultural engine, glorifying in a great deal of vermilion and blue paint, and filling, it appeared, a long-felt want, in which his interest was something like a tenth. This for the face or front of his concerns. On the outside, as he phrased it, he was variously and mysteriously engaged. 
No dollar slept in his possession. Rather, he kept all simultaneously flying like a conjurer with oranges. My own earnings, when I began to have a share, he would but show me for a moment and disperse again, like those elusive money gifts which are flashed in the eyes of childhood only to be entombed in the missionary box. He would come down, radiant from a weekly balance sheet, clap me on the shoulder, and declare himself a winner by gargantuan figures, and prove destitute of a quarter for a drink. "'What on earth have you done with it?' I would ask. "'Into the mill again, all reinvested,' he would cry, with infinite delight. Investment was ever his word. He could not bear what he called gambling. "'Never touch stocks, London,' he would say. "'Nothing but legitimate business.' And yet, heaven knows, many an indurated gambler might have drawn back appalled at the first hint of some Pinkerton's investments. One, which I succeeded in tracking home, an instance for a specimen, was a seventh share in the charter of an ill-starred schooner bound for Mexico to smuggle weapons on the one trip and cigars upon the other. The latter end of his enterprise, involving, as it did, shipwreck, confiscation, and a lawsuit with the underwriters, was too painful to be dwelt upon at length. "'It's proved to be a disappointment,' was as far as my friend would go with me in words. But I knew, from observation, that the fabric of his fortunes tottered. For the rest, it was only by accident that I got wind of the transaction, for Pinkerton, after a time, was shy of introducing me to his arcana, the reason you are to hear presently. The office, which was, or should have been, the point of rest for so many evolving dollars, stood in the heart of the city, a high and spacious room with many plate-glass windows. A glazed cabinet of polished redwood offered to the eye a regiment of some two hundred bottles, conspicuously labelled. These were all charged with Pinkerton's thirteen star, although from across the room it would have required an expert to distinguish them from the same number of bottles of Corvoisier. I used to twit my friend with this resemblance, and propose a new edition of the pamphlet, with the title thus improved, Why Drink French Brandy When We Can Give You the Same Labels? The doors of the cabinet revolved all day upon their hinges, and if there entered any one who was a stranger to the merits of the brand, he departed laden with a bottle. When I used to protest at this extravagance, "'My dear Loden,' Pinkerton would cry, "'you don't seem to catch on to business principles. The prime cost of the spirit is literally nothing. I couldn't find a cheaper advertisement if I tried.' Again, the side-post of the cabinet, there leaned a gaudy umbrella, preserved there as a relic. It appears that when Pinkerton was about to place thirteen star upon the market, the rainy season was at hand. He lay dark, almost penury, awaiting the first shower, at which, as upon a signal, the man thoroughfares became dotted with his agents, vendors of advertisements, and the whole world of San Francisco from the businessman fleeing for the ferry-boat, to the lady waiting at the corner for her car, sheltered itself under umbrellas with a strange device. "'Are you wet? Try Thirteen Star.' "'It was a mammoth boom,' said Pinkerton, with a sigh of delighted recollection. "'There wasn't another umbrella to be seen. I stood at this window, Loden, feasting my eyes, and I declare I felt like Vanderbilt.' And it was to this neat application of the local climate that he owed not only much of the sale of Thirteen Star, 
but the whole business of his advertising agency. The large desk, to resume our survey of the office, stood about the middle, knee-deep, in stacks of handbills and posters, of Why Drink French Brandy, and The Advertiser's Vain Meckham. It was flanked upon the one hand by two female typewriters, who rested not between the hours of nine and four, and upon the other by a model of the agricultural machine. The walls, where they were not broken by telephone boxes and a couple photographs, one representing the wreck of the James L. Moody on a bold and broken coast, and the other the Saturday tug alive with amateur fishers, almost disappeared under oil paintings, gaudily framed. Many of these were relics of the Latin Quarter, and I must do Pinkerton the justice of saying that none of them were bad, and some had remarkable merit. They went off slowly, but for handsome figures, and their places were progressively supplied with the work of local artists. These last it was one of my first duties to review and criticize. Some of them were villainous, yet all were saleable. I said so, and the next moment we saw myself, the figure of a miserable renegade, bearing arms in the wrong camp. I was told to look at pictures thenceforth, not with the eye of the artist, but of the dealer, and I saw the stream widen that divided me from all I loved. "'Now, Luden,' Pinkerton had said, the morning after the lecture, "'now, Luden, we can go at it shoulder to shoulder. This is what I have longed for. I wanted two heads and four arms, and now I have them. You'll find it's just the same as art, all observations and imagination, only more movement.' Just wait till you begin to feel the charm. I might have waited long. Perhaps I lack a sense, for our whole existence seemed to me one dreary bustle, and the place we bustled in fitly to be called the place of yawning. I slept in a little den beside the office. Pinkerton, in the office itself, stretched on a patent sofa which sometimes collapsed, his slumbers still further menaced by an imminent clock with an alarm. Roused by this diabolical contrivance, we rose early, went forth early to breakfast, and returned by nine to what Pinkerton called work and I distraction. Masses of letters must be opened, read, and answered, some by me at a subsidiary desk, which I had been introduced to on the first morning of my arrival, others by my bright-eyed friend pacing the room like a caged lion as he dictated to the tinkling typewriters. Masses of wet proof had to be overhauled and scrawled upon with a blue, rustic, six-inch caps, bold spacing here, or sometimes terms more fervid, as for instance this, which I remember Pinkerton to have spurted on the margin of an advertisement of soothing syrup. "'Throw this all down. Have you never printed an advertisement? I'll be round in half an hour.' The ledger and sale-book besides we had always with us. Such was the backbone of our occupation, and tolerable enough. But the far greater proportion of our time was consumed by visitors, whole-souled, grandfellows, no doubt, and as sharp as a needle, but to me, unfortunately, not diverting. Some were apparently half-witted, and must be talked over by the hour before they could reach the humblest decisions, which they only left the office to return again, ten minutes later, and rescind. Others came with a vast show of hurry and dispatch, but I observed it to be principally show. The agricultural model, for instance, which was practicable, proved a kind of fly-paper for these busybodies. I have seen them blankly turn the crank of it for five minutes at a time, simulating, to nobody's deception, 
business interest. Good thing this, Pinkerton. Sell much of it? Ha! Couldn't use it, I suppose, as a medium of advertisement for my article? Which was perhaps toilet soap. Others, a still worse variety, carried us to neighboring saloons to dice for cocktails and, after the cocktails were paid, for dollars on a corner of the counter. The attraction of dice for all these people was indeed extraordinary. At a certain club, where I once dined in the character of my partner, Mr. Dodd, the dice-box came on the table with the wine, an artless substitute for after-dinner wit. Of all our visitors, I believe I preferred Emperor Norton, the very mention of whose name reminds me I am doing scanty justice to the folks of San Francisco. In what other city would a harmless madman, who supposed himself Emperor of the Two Americas, have been so fostered and encouraged? Where else would even the people of the streets have respected the poor soul's illusion? Where else would bankers and merchants have received his visits, cashed his checks, and submitted to his small assessments? Where else would he have been suffered to attend and address the exhibition days of schools and colleges? Where else, in God's green earth, have taken his pick of restaurants, ransacked the bill of fare, and departed scathless? They tell me he was even an exacting patron, threatening to withdraw his custom when dissatisfied, and I can believe it for his face wore an expression distinctly gastronomical. Pinkerton had received from this monarch a cabinet appointment. I have seen the brevet, wondering mainly at the good nature of the printer, who had executed the forms, and I think my friend was at the head either of foreign affairs or education. It mattered indeed nothing, the presentation being in all offices identical. It was at a comparatively early date that I saw Jim in the exercise of his public functions. His Majesty entered the office, a portly, rather flabby man, with the face of a gentleman, rendered unspeakably pathetic and absurd by the great sabre at his side and the peacock feather in his hat. "'I have called to remind you, Mr. Pinkerton, that you are somewhat in the arrear of taxes,' he said, with old-fashioned stately courtesy. "'Well, Your Majesty, what, what is the amount?' asked Jim. And when the figure was named—it was generally two or three dollars—paid upon the nail and offered a bonus in the shape of thirteen star. "'I am always delighted to patronize native industries,' said Norton the first. "'San Francisco is publicly spirited in what concerns its emperor, and indeed, sir, of all my domains, it is my favorite city.' "'Come,' said I, when he was gone. I prefer that customer to the lot. It's really rather a distinction, Jim admitted. I think it must have been the umbrella racket that attracted him. We were distinguished under the rose by the notice of other and greater men. There were days when Jim wore an air of unusual capacity and resolve, spoke with more brevity like the one pressed for time, and took often on his tongue such phrases as, Longhurst told me so this morning, or, I had it straight from the Longhurst himself. It was no wonder, I used to think, that Pinkerton was called to counsel with such titans, for the creature's quickness and resource were beyond praise. In the early days when he consulted me about his reserve, pacing the room, projecting, ciphering, extending hypothetical interest, trebling imaginary capital, his engine, to renew an excellent old word, laboring full steam ahead. I could never decide whether my sense of respect or entertainment were the stronger. 
but these good hours were destined to be curtailment. Yes, it's smart enough, I once observed, but Pinkerton, do you think it's honest? You don't think it's honest? he wailed. Oh, dear me, that I should have heard such an expression on your lips. At the sight of his distress, I plagiarized unblushingly from the meaner. You seem to think honesty as simple as blind man's buff, said I, but it's more a delicate affair than that, delicate as any art. Oh, well, at that rate, he exclaimed with complete relief, that's casuistry. I am perfectly certain of one thing, that what you propose is dishonest, I returned. Well, say no more about it, that's settled, he replied. Thus, almost at a word, my point was carried. But the trouble was that such differences continued to recur, until we began to regard each other with alarm. If there were one thing Pinkerton valued himself upon, it was his honesty. If there were one thing he clung to, it was my good opinion. And when both were involved, as was the case in these commercial cruises, the man was on the rack. My own position, if you consider how much I owed him, how hateful is the trade of fault-finder, and yet I lived and fattened on these questionable operations, was perhaps equally distressing. If I had been more sterling or more combative, things might have gone extremely far. But in truth, I was just base enough to profit by what was not forced on my attention. Rather than seek scenes, Pinkerton quite cunningly enough to avail himself of my weakness. And it was a relief to both when he began to involve his proceedings in a decent mystery. Our last dispute, which had a most unlooked-for consequence, turned on the refitting of condemned ships. He had brought a miserable hulk, and came, rubbing his hands, to inform me she was already on the slip, under a new name, to be repaired. When first I had heard of this industry, I suppose I scarcely comprehended, but much discussion had sharpened my faculties, and now my brow became heavy. "'I can have no part of that, Pinkerton,' said I. He leaped like a man shot. "'What next?' he cried. "'What ails you, anyway? You seem to me to dislike everything that is profitable.' "'The ship has been condemned by Lloyd's agent,' said I. "'But I tell you, it's a deal. The ship's in splendid condition. There's next to nothing wrong with her, but the garboard streak and the stern-post. I tell you, Lloyd's is like a ring, like everybody else. Only if it's an English ring, and that's what deceives you. If it was American, you would be crying it down all day. It's Anglomania, common Anglomania,' he cried with growing irritation. "'I will not make money by risking men's lives,' was my ultimatum. "'Great Caesar! Isn't all speculation of risk? Isn't the fairest kind of ship-owning to risk men's lives? And mining, how's that for risk? And look at the elevator business. There's danger, if you like. Didn't I take my risk when I bought her? She might have been far too gone, and where would I have been? Loden, he cried. "'I tell you the truth. You're too full of refinement for this world.' "'I condemn you out of your own lips.' I replied. The fairest kind of ship-owning, says you. If you please, let us only do the fairest kind of business. The shot told, the irrepressible was silenced, and I profited by the chance to pour in a broadside of another sort. He was all sunk in money-getting, I pointed out. 
He never dreamed of anything but dollars. Where were all his generous, progressive sentiments? Where was his culture? I asked. And where was the American type? It's true, Luden, he cried, striding up and down the room and wildly scouring at his hair. You're perfectly right. I'm becoming materialized. Oh, what a thing to have to say. What a confession to make. Materialized. Me. Luden, this must not go on no longer. You've been a loyal friend to me once more. Give me your hand. You've saved me again. I must do something to rouse my spiritual side. Something desperate. Study something. Something dry and tough. What shall it be? Theology? Algebra? What's algebra? It's dry and tough enough, said I. A squared plus 2AB plus B squared. It's stimulating, though, he inquired. I told him I believed so, and that it was considering fortifying to types. Then that's the thing for me. I'll study algebra, he concluded. The next day, by application to one of his typewriting women, he got word of a young lady one Miss Mamie McBride, who was willing and able to conduct him in these bloomless meadows, and her circumstances being lean, and terms consequently moderate, he and Mamie were soon in agreement for two lessons in the week. He took fire with unexampled rapidity. He seemed unable to tear himself away from the symbolic art. An hour's lesson occupied the whole evening, and the original two was soon increased to four, and then five. I bade him beware of female blandishments. "'The first thing you know, you'll be falling in love with an algebraist,' said I. "'Don't say it, even in jest,' he cried. "'She's a lady I revere. "'I could no more lay a hand upon her than I would upon a spirit. "'Luden, I don't believe God ever made a pure-minded woman,' "'which appeared to me too fervent to be reassuring. "'Meanwhile, I had been long expostulating with my friend upon a different matter. "'I'm the fifth wheel,' I kept telling him. For any use I am, I might as well be in Senegambia. The letters you gave me to attend might be answered by a sucking child. And I tell you, what is it, Pinkerton? Either you've got to find me some employment, or I'll have to start in and find it for myself. This I said with a corner of my eye in the usual quarter toward the arts, little dreaming what destiny was to provide. I've got it, Luden, Pinkerton at last replied. Got the idea on Portrero cars found I hadn't a pencil, borrowed one from the conductor, and figured on it roughly all the way in town. I saw it was the thing at last. Gives you a real show. All your talents and accomplishments. Come in here. Here's a sketch advertisement. Just run your eye over it. Sun, ozone, and music. Pinkerton's hebdomadary picnics. That's a good catching phrase, hebdomadary, though it's hard to say. I made a note of it when I was looking in the dictionary how to spell hectonagal. Well, you're a boss word, I said. Before you're very much older, I'll have you in type as long as yourself. And here it is, you see. Five dollars a head and ladies free. Monster oleo of attractions. How does that strike you? Free luncheon under the greenwood tree. Dance on the elastic sward. Home again in the bright evening hours. Manager and honorary steward. H. Luden Dodd, Esquire, the well-known connoisseur. Singular how a man runs from Scylla to Cherbdis. I was so intent on securing the disappearance of a single epithet that I accepted the rest of the advertisement and 
all that it involved without discussion. So it befell that the words, well-known connoisseur, were deleted, but that H. Luden Dodd became manager and honorary steward of Pinkerton's hebdomadary picnics, soon shortened, by popular consent, to the dromedary. By eight o'clock, any Sunday morning, I was to be observed by an admiring public on the wharf. The garb and attributes of sacrifice consisted of a black frock coat, rosetted, its pockets bulging with sweet meats and inferior cigars, trousers of light blue silk, a silk hat like a reflector, and a varnished wand. A goodly steamer guarded my one flank, panting and throbbing, flags fluttering fore and aft of her, illustrative of the dromedary and patriotism. My other flank was covered by the ticket office, strongly held by a trusty character of the Scots persuasion, rosetted like all his superior, and smoking a cigar to mark the occasion festive. At half-past, having assured myself that all was well with the free luncheons, I lit a cigar myself, and awaited the strains of the pioneer band. I had never to wait long. They were German and punctual and by a few minutes after the half-hour I would hear them booming down the streets with a long military roll of drums, some score of gratuitous asses prancing at the head in bearskin hats and buckskin aprons, and conspicuous with resplendent axes. The band, of course, we paid for, but so strong is the San Franciscan passion for public masquerade that the asses, as I say, were all gratuitous, pranced for the love of it, and cost us nothing but their luncheon. The musicians formed up in the bows of my steamer, and struck into a skittish polka, the asses mounted guard upon the gangway, and the ticket office, and presently after, in family parties of father, mother, and children, in the form of duplicate lovers, or in that of solitary youth, the public began to descend upon us by the carful at a time, four to six hundred, perhaps, with a strong German flavor, and all merry as children. When these had been shepherded on board, the inevitable belated two or three had gained the deck amidst the cheering of the public. The hawser was cast off, and we plunged into the bay. End of chapter 7, part 1